we haven't met yet, my name's Jamie, one of the pastors of our church. Excited to have you guys, particularly if you're new, if this is your first time with us, we'd love to meet you after the service, or uh, if you are rushing your way to some sort of Easter brunch or lunch, perhaps maybe even next Sunday. Um, man, what a beautiful day, right? I was tracking this weather back in the early part of the week, and I thought, it's going to be like 40 degrees, and we're all going to be doing this as we're singing, kind of, you know, shaking our way through it, and it's just gotten more and more beautiful, that forecast, day by day. I tried to dress up a little more than usual this morning, but James outdappered me, so there's always next year, and, and we will uh, game on, as they say. Uh, man, I'm excited. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about you, particularly just even over the last couple weeks, kind of ramping up toward Easter, preparing our hearts for Easter through this prayer campaign that we've been doing uh, for the last 14 days. Uh, thanks again to Marilyn for all that she's done to put together those prayer prompts, which are essentially a uh, summarized version of our partnership booklet, our covenant membership booklet in prayer form. And so uh, I hope you're encouraged by those. If you're not a member of our church uh, at this point, and those prayers sound like the substance of a church you want to be a part of, would love for you to connect with our next uh, partnership uh, course and process. We'll do that on the other side of spring break, and so be on the lookout for uh, an email uh, about that, and we'll, we'll do our best to onboard you in that regard. Uh, but for this morning, for the sake of time, we're going to go ahead and jump into the scriptures together. Uh, let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to open up to Luke chapter 7. That's right, we're going to be in the book of Luke as we have been for months now. Uh, but rest assured, there are uh, resurrection references and themes, so we will not uh, be bypassing Easter Sunday in terms of our celebration of the resurrection. In fact, in this morning's passage, we're actually going to see something of the, the subtle foreshadowing of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, uh, even in John the Baptist's response to Jesus, as we begin this morning's passage, it has the essence of Good Friday. As we bring it to the close, it has the essence of Easter Sunday. You'll see that in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, unfortunately, we don't have a screen out here with slides to follow along with. And so I would just encourage you uh, to, on your phone, perhaps pull up a Bible app, or you can go to esv.org, and you'll be able to track with the translation that we're going to be using this morning. Let me, uh, let me go and pray for us and We'll jump in and get after it. God, what a glorious day. Not a cloud in the sky. The leaves in bloom on this lawn. The reminder of life birthed out of the death of winter. That even nature proclaims the themes of death and resurrection. It's inescapable, Lord. And yet we have something more specific in terms of your person and work, Jesus, as we dive into your word this morning. I pray that you would awaken our hearts to the beauty and wonder of who you are, that we would walk away declaring, yes, Jesus Christ is the crucified and risen Messiah. No matter what the circumstances of my life are, I believe that to be true. I rest in that. I trust in that truth. I trust in the person of Jesus. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in our midst this morning who comes in de-churched, jaded toward the church on the basis of past experience, perhaps inoculated to the gospel, having heard just enough to keep the full uh, dose at bay, so to speak, that if there be 
Many of you come in with their doubts and their questions and perhaps have read their circumstances into the scriptures and into the gospel. Lord, that you would do a great work this morning to breathe life into those dead places of our hearts, Lord. And for those who come in representing your invisible church, the redeemed, Lord, I pray that, that you would put steel in the spine of our soul so that whether we be going through our own doubts right now, our own trying circumstances, or whether those are to come tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, that, that you would fortify us through our time in the Word this morning and that we would see that no matter what our circumstances are, that Jesus, you are the one. And that we would celebrate that this morning. Holy Spirit, I invite you to move. Pray that you would give me a feeling sense of the things I preach in these moments to come. That you would do a great work in our midst, a work that only you can do. A work that, that without you doing it would simply be a, a man uh, operating in an exercise of futility on a stage. So please, we plead with you to do what only you can do. Awaken our hearts to the beauty and wonder of the gospel yet again or perhaps for the first time. In Jesus' name I pray, the risen Savior and King. Amen. So I think it's safe to say as we step onto this lawn and, and into this live stream that we all have our doubts. Doubts about the future, perhaps. Doubts about our relationship. Doubts about our identity, about the meaning of life, perhaps even doubts about God, as we doubt his goodness at times, his wisdom and power, whether he's truly present in our lives, whether there's a ceiling to our prayers. Where do those kind of doubts come from? I mean, sometimes they come from the enemy, right, who tempts us to believe that God's word can't be trusted. He's been doing that thing since the garden with our first parents. Did God really say? Sometimes those doubts come when we're caught in the destructive grip of sin and aren't able to think clearly about the things of God. And then sometimes they come as a result of the pummeling waves of circumstance as tragedy strikes or perhaps our expectations go unmet. Disappointed, disenchanted, disillusioned. Even John the Baptist had his moments of doubt, his own dark nights of the soul, so to speak. So that this morning's passage brings us face to face, not with doubting Thomas, but doubting John. As he finds himself imprisoned in a, a desert fortress roughly five miles from the Dead Sea for having publicly rebuked Herod, Herod Antipas and all his evils. John's disciples, they were known to visit him from time to time to give him the latest on uh, what was happening outside the prison walls. Which is why we're told, verse 18 of chapter 7 of Luke's gospel account, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. Right, going back, all these things, the things that have just unfolded in the previous chapters of Luke's gospel account, the previous passages, on this particular occasion, John's disciples come with a report about Jesus, the substance of his teaching, the miracles he had been performing, and it leaves John perplexed, perhaps even unnerved. David Gooding, in his commentary on this passage, says, it was all right, his going about, Jesus' going about healing an odd slave here, raising a widow's son from the dead there. John had nothing against that. But what about the big issues? When was Jesus going to start putting oppressive government right? Abolishing evil rulers like Herod? Putting down the Roman tyranny and giving Israel her political independence? 
What happened to the axe being laid to the root of the trees? Chapter 3, verse 9. The coming judgment to destroy the enemies of God. When was Jesus going to come and bust John out of prison? Messiah was supposed to bring liberation to the captives. We just sang that. In the establishment of his messianic kingdom. And yet, here John finds himself in captivity, anything but liberated. He goes on to say, in John, verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one? The very question that motivated Luke's writing. as He wrote that we might have certainty of who Jesus is and what he's come to accomplish. This is where Good Friday comes into play. John's question, I don't know about you, it reminds me of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in the wake of the transpiring events of Good Friday. Saddened. Devastated. Luke 24, 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was going to free us from Roman oppression. The one to overthrow Roman rule. In John's case, not having yet given up hope, but certainly confused and desperate for clarity. Very same John who himself had proclaimed that Jesus was the one to come. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very same John who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, declaring himself unworthy to untie the strap of Jesus' sandal. So that even a prophet of God can go through a dark night of the soul, a moment of doubt. Isn't that encouraging? So John sends two of his disciples to Jesus that they might ask on John's behalf, are, are you the one? Did I make a mistake? Shall we look for another? Are you the promised Messiah? And we're told, verse 21, In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is far too discerning to explicitly declare, yeah, I'm, I'm the Messiah. That kind of explicit declaration would have surely led to his own prompt execution, which wasn't yet in the Father's timing. And so he instead performs a number of miracles, as we've seen him do throughout Luke's gospel account, leaving it to John's messengers to come to their own conclusions bringing together a number of passages from the book of Isaiah that show his healings and exorcisms to be a fulfillment of the messianic promises. Go and tell John what you've seen. Go and tell him what you've heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Many of the things, again, that we've seen over and over again throughout this book of the Bible thus far. But notice what John leaves out. Notice that John doesn't include from that Isaiah language and imagery the language of proclaiming liberty to the captives. 
Isaiah 61, the language of opening the prison to those who are bound. I mean, Jesus does include resurrection language. It doesn't get any better than that, any more miraculous than that. Jesus says, I can raise the dead, but he says nothing about proclaiming liberty to the captives and busting out of prison those who are bound. It's quite a stark contrast from last week's passage where we saw Jesus show compassion in raising a widow's son. In this case, Jesus shows compassion just the same, but he does it by an exclusion, out of love for John. Yes, I'm the Messiah, John. You need not look for another, and that doesn't hinge on the basis of whether or not your circumstances change. You may die in that prison. In fact, we know John's head will be delivered up on a platter. And it doesn't change the fact Jesus says that I'm the promised one. Come to establish something far greater, John, the restoration of fallen creation. And blessed is the one, verse 23, who is not offended by me. In other words, keep believing, John. That's where the true blessing lies. Not ultimately in your circumstances. I think it would be fair to ask and I think your answer, if you're honest, should be yes. Do you ever find yourself doubting Jesus? Particularly in the midst of unmet expectations, seasons of suffering. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus is big enough to handle our confusion. He's big enough to handle our doubts and to meet them with the evidence of that which is true. We see it in this morning's passage. Through Jesus' words, through Jesus' healings. Luke surely believes that, that, that Jesus wants to meet us in our doubts with the evidence of that which is true as he's written this account that the reader might have certainty going back to the first four verses of this book of the Bible. We're told in, in verse 24 When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Crowds overhear the discussion between Jesus and John's disciples and they're apparently beginning to question John. And so Jesus asks a series of questions intended to remind them of who John is. Are you looking for a a reed shaken by the wind? A man weak, fearful, easily swayed? No, John's more of the giant sequoia type. Firmly planted, unafraid to proclaim the truth in the midst of the winds of opposition. Were you looking for a man in soft clothing, a man of luxury? Oh, John's not in it for the money. Dressed not in a king's robe, but camel's hair. Steady diet, not a filet and fine wine, but locusts and honey. Yeah, kings are found in palaces, not out in the rustic wilderness. But though John is certainly in a palace as this passage unfolds, it's not in luxury, but rather in chains. Verse 26, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. Jesus affirms that, that in John, the people had encountered a prophet of God. 
but, but not just any prophet, the final prophet before the inauguration of the kingdom of God, set apart for the Lord's work. We've been talking about this for months now in this book of the Bible, a great revival, the calling of Israel to repentance and preparation to meet her God in the coming of his kingdom, the forerunner called to herald the coming of the Messiah to prepare the way of the Lord in fulfillment of the book of Malachi, which Jesus quotes Right here in this morning's passage, the final words of Old Testament prophecy before everything goes dark for 400 years. I tell you, verse 28, Jesus says, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's quite the compliment. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is greater than he. Greatest prophet who's ever been born up to that time, Jesus says, greater than Isaiah, greater than Jeremiah, greater than Moses. What was so great about John? In the words of one commentator, what made John important was who Jesus was. All the other prophets looked for the coming Messiah from a distance. John alone had the privilege of declaring in the presence of Christ, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus calls the crowd to respect the Lord's prophet. And yet, think about this. Jesus makes clear that he's come to inaugurate a kingdom, the age of promise now giving way to the age of fulfillment, and that the least in the kingdom he's come to inaugurate, they know something of a greater blessedness than even John enjoyed. As John only saw the beginning of what Jesus would do. We ourselves, we sit on the other side of the cross and empty tomb. John didn't get to see that. He goes on to say Jesus does, or I guess Luke does in parentheses, I should say, when all the people heard this, verse 29, and the tax collectors too, they're they're so filthy, the tax collectors, they get their own category. All the people and the tax collectors. They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by John. It's the the common people, tax collectors in the crowd who declare God just. In the words of one commentator, they accepted the ways of God as they were and did not try to constrain him into a mold of their own manufacture. Whoo, that's convicting. In contrast, the Pharisees and lawyers who reject the purpose of God, finding nothing to repent of in their self-righteousness and complacency. Going back to John's message out in the wilderness, Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That was a warning back in chapter 3 to the Pharisees and Sadducees who expected those of Gentile descent to receive John's baptism as a means of ritual cleansing and being brought into the covenant community. An acts of cleansing from which they themselves thought they were exempt believing they were already clean because they belonged to the covenant people of God. As this morning's passage declares, verse 30, not having been baptized by him, by John. 
thinking they didn't need John's message, John's baptism of repentance, which John boldly declares going back to chapter 3, there are none who are exempt from their need for the cleansing work of the Lord in their lives. Setting the stage, John was, for the cleansing work of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Philip Ryken, in his commentary, says the only people who ever find salvation are the people who agree that God is right to say that they are unrighteous. Once we agree with that, he says, we are ready to come to Jesus with a sincere repentance and certain faith. So I have to ask this morning, have you declared your unrighteousness before God and received the forgiveness that can only be found by grace through faith in Jesus? Or have you rejected God's verdict, perceiving yourself to be in right standing with God apart from Christ? Perhaps even while all along going through the motions of cultural Christianity, checking all the boxes, so to speak. Coming back to this morning's passage, Jesus closes out this moment of teaching by declaring the absurdity of rejecting both he and John and for completely opposite reasons. Look at this, verse 31. Jesus says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children singing in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom, Jesus says, is justified by all her children. Jesus offers a parable here in exposing something of people's childish attitudes and perceptions. Kids are great with coming up game, uh, with games, are they not? If you're a parent, particularly of young kids, you, you know this to be true. Uh, one of our girls' favorites is a game they've come up with called Fluffland, where it's basically everything soft and cushy that they can find in, in the house, they'll put together and put it on a bed or on the couch, and then they'll climb up above it and just fall into it. Great. It's very low-maintenance, low-key. I love it. But they're also at times great kids are, are they not at fighting about what to play? I don't want to play Fluffland right now. I want to play Enchanted Forest. Or I want to play on the trampoline. Jesus says people are like children in this regard. Some say, hey, let's pull out the flutes and play wedding together. And others say, I don't want to play wedding today. Let's play funeral instead. Never satisfied. Childish in a sense. You see, Jesus understands that, that some people are always and forever looking for something else. Refusing to receive the salvation, the hope, and the peace that God offers. No matter who proclaims it to them. No matter what form or fashion or shape it takes. Right, the Pharisees and, and lawyers, they didn't like the dirge of John. Wanting him to dance in the seeming gloom of his asceticism. Too primitive. Too condemning. Some even going so far as to accuse John of being demon-possessed as he called them to repent of their sins. They didn't like the merriment of Jesus either, changing their tune when he came onto the scene, wanting him to fast in the seeming debauchery of his eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. 
slandering his reputation, accusing him of, of gluttony, drunkenness. Again, David Gooding in his commentary, he says, they would neither have the holiness and wrath of God nor the love and forgiveness of God. All they wanted was a God small enough to compromise and to pretend that their imperfect keeping of the law was adequate. A salvation small enough for their merits to earn it. Jesus and John, they respectively called people to dance, to weep, to repent and rejoice in the Lord's salvation. Pharisees and lawyers, they perceive themselves to be wise. And yet, Jesus declares that wisdom is justified by all her children. Meaning that, that those who are truly wise will see that which is right, rightly. The wisdom of God in both Jesus and John. The one preparing the way of the other. The, God's promised messenger and Messiah. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Coming back to the story of the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And this is where Resurrection Sunday comes into play. Those who, like John, were perplexed. They were saddened. They were unnerved. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Did we get it wrong? To which in that case, Jesus responded by, notice this, if you look at Luke 24, by doing the very same thing he had done with John's messengers. Taking them back to the Old Testament and not just Isaiah on that dusty road to Emmaus, but Moses and all the prophets, interpreting to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, the necessity of his suffering, his cross, and his subsequent glory, his resurrection. The difference being that the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus takes place on the other side of the empty tomb. Are you the one? Shall we look for another? I said it earlier and I'll say it again. Jesus is big enough to handle our confusion. Jesus is big enough to handle our doubts and to meet them with the evidence of that which is true, including, most surely, the evidence of the empty tomb. And so, if you bring doubts into this place this morning, or you anticipate with sobriety that there are some doubts to come, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, then it's appropriate for you to say, He is risen, He's risen indeed. And that evidence is bigger than any of my doubts. Are you the one? The tomb's empty, church. The answer is yes. We get a chance to sing that now. As we already have this morning. That's one way we're going to worship for the next few minutes before we scatter from this lawn and take the gospel out into our neighborhoods, workplaces, friend groups, family circles. Also have the opportunity to receive of the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, that meal's for you. If you missed it on your way in, uh, there are communion cups on either of these tables on the side here of the lawn. You're welcome to go grab one of those. We got two more songs at any point during those last couple songs. You're welcome to take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and to dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. What a, what a beautiful opportunity. There's no empty tomb without a dead Jesus, without a crucified Jesus. And so when we receive the Lord's Supper this morning, we're celebrating a part of the truth of the reality of the good news of who Jesus is. But, but we get to declare on the other side of the bread and the cup that you've risen, Jesus. 
The tomb is, is empty. We're, we're not coming together to receive a means of grace, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper on the basis of you still being broken and bloody in the tomb. No. The tomb is no longer occupied. And so I, I encourage you to remember that as you receive of the elements this morning. And to praise the Lord that the, the story of the gospel is not just the story of Jesus' suffering, but his subsequent glory too. So that when we sing, when we receive the Lord's Supper together as his church, we do that worshiping a living Christ.